Do you struggle with the claims of your faith and the reality of your life? Do you ever sin and then think, am I really a Christian? Is the flesh in your life sometimes out of control? Uh, Then this is the episode for you as we deep dive into Romans chapter 7. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back into the channel. It is youtube.com slash Tim Hatch live. And if you would do me a very big favor and subscribe to the channel, I'd be most appreciative. We are going verse by verse through the amazing content that is Romans, the greatest perhaps explanation of the gospel in all the world. And we are in Romans chapter seven. So take out your Bibles. It is deep dive Bible study season five, episode 15. And I'm so glad that you are here with me. Let's think about these things that Paul has talked about so far. And, uh, and then we'll open up the text and pray. Uh, He's talked about the reality that we need a deconstruction of our lives. And last week we talked about the two spectrums of deconstruction, whether we be relativists or lenient people in our lives. Like, I'm just going to sin because, you know, there's grace and I can have forgiveness for it. And then there's the legalists of, no, we need more rules. We need more regulation. We need to be harder on ourselves and harder on others. And those two spectrums are always kind of like part of our being, part of our existence. And so he has been deconstructing for seven chapters. Okay. In fact, in Romans seven chapters, the first seven chapters, are all deconstruction of your self-confidence, of your confidence in the system, of your confidence in a program, of your confidence even in your own religious practice. And and now he's going to bring us to a place where he pretty much describes, I believe, every Christian's struggle. So we're going to get there. Let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to read your word and hear it. I pray that our hearts are open and our eyes see what you want us to see, our ears hear what you want us to hear, and our hearts are changed through the Word and through Jesus. May the indwelling Holy Spirit add understanding to what we are about to partake in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go. Okay, so these are the spectrums that you're going to deal with. Romans 6, he answers or deconstructs the relativists or the the lenient people. Romans 7, he deconstructs or he answers or challenges the legalists. Which one are you, right? Which one are you? And I was talking about how this goes back and forth, not just in the idea that there's two different kinds of people, but there's kind always, I believe, two different kinds of you. Let's be honest. Let me know in the comments if this is uh, applying to you. There's legalist days in your life. There's relativist days in your life. And I said last week that they're both in the church. And this is why there's tension. And that's what the tension was in the first century church in Rome. That the legalists, the Jews who knew the law, loved the law, believed the law, wanted the Gentiles to get on board with loving the law, believing the law, and living the law. And Paul's literally saying to them, guys, you couldn't do it. They can't do it. None of us can do it. I can't do it. We need someone else to help us do it. We need somebody else to give us a better way forward. And we're going to get to that in Romans chapter 8. But for seven, cha- I want you to think about that. For seven chapters, Paul has been deconstructing the confidence of both the relativists and the legalists. I'm going to do something new on the deep dive, only on the deep dive, because I so value 
your uh, subscription to the channel, your uh, engagement with the channel, and especially your comments. I read every single comment in the live stream and then in the final product. And I want to do something new. I want to call it the my favorite comment from last week. So my favorite comment from last week comes from uh, Tally Cabral. We'll put it here up on the screen. And I love this comment. Wow, I completely see the major swings I have gone through throughout my walk from both ends of the spectrum. And I totally understand how the legalist swing leaves, leaves me loveless. This is where I found myself on multiple occasions. But thank God he makes me aware and corrects me. I am in a great place right now, but I am well aware of how easily I can swing in the wrong direction. I thank God that although I have not arrived, I'm no longer stuck in the chains that once had me bound. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Tally, because it's so important for us Bible teachers. You know, one one of the <laughs> pitfalls of Bible teaching is you never know. Is it getting in? Did I say what God wants to say? Did I did I make it clear? And I love your comments, and I and I thank you for your comments. So always feel free. Tell me what you think. A lot of you tell me I don't really do the comment thing. I'm shy. I love the comments. Bring them on. And while I'm thinking of it, do me a favor if you are watching on YouTube, like, share, or subscribe to the channel. So. We're going to get further now beyond deconstruction and we're going to go into Romans chapter 7 verse 13 and let's get into what it meant. So he's he's deconstructed the legalists, he's deconstructed the relativists. And now having done so, what I love here that he does in Romans chapter 7 verse 14 or 13, sorry, is actually Romans chapter 7, verse 7, all the way through the rest of the chapter, is what Paul does now is he turns his attention to himself. Paul's talking about his own struggle with this stuff. So if you struggle with it, Paul's just letting you know, I struggle with it too. And I want to put something on the screen. It's going to kind of not make sense before we get to the text, but it's important. There is a difference between you and your actions. There's a distance. There's a distance between you and your actions, what you do. And that distance is going to frustrate you. <laughs> and that distance has to be understood. What I'm talking about is we've got to understand what's in this because you are not just an acting being. This is, there, there is no direct connection between you and your actions. There's a whole bunch of, you know, questionable activity, uh, things going on that, that shape our actions and, and our lives and what we do has to press through that or goes through that, doesn't have to press through, just goes through that and leads to our actions. That's the picture that I want to start off with. And we're going to show you by the end of this episode, what those things are between you and and your actions so that you can understand yourself better and then look to Christ more deeply. Amen? Let's get into the text, Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Paul says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What on earth is Paul talking about here? Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the law. And he's saying, did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? No, it wasn't the law. law the law does not kill us. The law reveals the sin that is producing death in us. That's what he says. Sin takes advantage of the law and produces death through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. In other words, the law comes alongside of us, God's word, what we should not be doing, 
and what we should be doing. So there's two kinds of sin. There's sins of commission. We do what we shouldn't. There's sins of omission. We don't do what we should. And the law reveals these things to us, and it reveals that sin is sin. And then through that commandment, sin becomes worse. It becomes heavier. The more we know of the Bible, anybody witness with me here? The more we know of what God wants, the more we realize we don't do it. And as a Jew, Paul knew this. He knew this because he loved the law. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. And he was strict in regards to the law. He says, I was blameless in regard to the law. I knew it and I tried my best to live it. And by the way, I nailed it. Now that was pre-conversion Paul. And I want you to keep that in mind. He thought he nailed the law before he got saved. I want you to keep that thought in mind because we're going to get back to that thought later on in the chapter. So verse 14, he says this, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Okay, so now two realities about the law. Earlier, if you remember, uh, he had said in verse 12 from last week that the law is three things, holy, uh, righteous, and good. Now he adds spiritual to it. So the law and the commandment, these are synonyms, all right? The law and the commandment are holy, righteous, good. Well, holy means it's from God. This is not man-made law. This is God's law, okay? And there, there is a huge difference. Then he says it is righteous. That means it's in line with the character of God. And then it is good. That means it's in line with the goodness of God, the being of God. God is good. The law is always good. The law is always exactly what it should be. And there, there is nothing that is wrong with the law. And then he adds it's spiritual. How can the law be spiritual? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the law goes deeper than the skin. The law deals with our hearts. This is why people avoid the Bible like the plague if they're unsaved. This is exactly why. Because as soon as they see what God says, it rubs them the wrong way deep down inside. They hate it. They resist it. They rebel against it. And they argue with it. They don't want anything to do with it. Because the law is that penetrating scalpel that cuts through all of the outside veneer that we love to put up before people and, and goes right to the issue of our hearts and says, this is not only are you not doing it, but you hate it. <laughs> you hate that God says this. You hate that God does not want this to be a part of your life. And again, that's that's pre-conversion. There's a difference uh, because now Paul is saying after conversion, we Christians know that the law is spiritual uh, and we know that it's holy and it's righteous and good. Listen, non-Christians do not say that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Non-Christians look at the Bible and they say, well, what about slavery? Well, what about uh, six-day creation? Well, what about, and how can this, and this, I mean, look, don't ever get into an argument about the, um, the uh, validation, if you will, of the Bible with a non-believer. It's, you're talking to people in darkness. There is no way, apart from a work of the Holy Spirit, that they will ever come to the understanding that this is God's word. Please save your breath and your own spiritual um, vitality. You know, when Jesus says, don't cast, to, don't cast your pearls before swine, don't give to dogs what is sacred. He's saying, don't have these arguments. Don't get into these debates. Because you will, you will constantly uh, get frustrated with them and it will only dr uh, trouble you more and more uh, as you do it. What is a Christian supposed to do with a non-Christian? A Christian is supposed to tell a non-Christian, 
what the Lord has done for them. That's it. Okay. So when you're in a context at work with a non-Christian and they want to start to argue about some social issue or evolution or, you know, the reliability of the scripture or how it was written by man and it was changed and it was rewritten and it was, I mean, I have heard it. And by the way, I have studied it all. And I have more confidence now having studied it than ever before in my life over the truthfulness of this word. But nonetheless, save your breath for all those arguments with a non-believer. And here's the only thing that you should do with a non-believer. Tell non-believers what Jesus Christ has done for you. The best thing you can do is just say, look, man, you know what? You're, you're welcome to your uh, opinions about the Bible, but I know what Jesus Christ has done for me. I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. And I know that I need a savior. I know I need forgiveness. And what Jesus Christ did is he saved me and he forgave me and he made me who he wanted me to be. And I'm not where I should be, but thank God I'm not where I was. And then that's it. Like mic drop, bam, walk out, walk away <laughs> because they're going to be, yeah, but well, you know, Jesus and he, 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 oh, by the way, the Hindus believe in the Muslims. I mean, man, forget that stuff. I've been in all those arguments. They're useless. They produce nothing but tension. So just tell people what Jesus has done. Okay, I got off base already. This episode is going to be long already. I'm sorry. Let's continue because we got to talk about what the law is. So four uses of the law that we've talked about uh, consistently on this uh, season. Number one, it reveals sin. It shows you what's wrong and what's right. Number two, it restrains some measure of sin. So even non-believers believe murdering is wrong, right? And it's kind of funny because even non-believers will say murdering murderers is wrong. They'll say the death penalty is wrong. Well, where'd you get the idea that putting someone to death is wrong? Well, you, you got that from God's law. Um, and, you know, you'll say, oh, they'll say, well, the Old Testament said capital punishment is right. And then they'll get into an argument. You'll say, well, the New Testament, actually, there can be a case made that we don't do that anymore. And again, I don't want to get into that debate because there is a valuable debate on both sides of that issue. But nonetheless... It restrains some measure of sin. It destroys our confidence and points us to Christ. That's the spiritual part of the law. And then number four, some say, not everybody says, some say that the law provides some measure of moral guidance for Christians. Although, let's be honest, the New Testament has a higher law. This is why Jesus will say, you have heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, even if you're angry with your brother, you've already murdered in your heart. Don't, you have heard it say, don't commit adultery. But even if you've looked lustfully, you have already committed adultery with your heart. The law of the New Testament is higher higher than the law of the Old Testament. So, you know, that's a debatable issue of whether or not the law of the Old Testament is applicable to the Christian lifestyle because the New Testament has plenty to say um, about what we should do and what we should not do uh, in a higher sense, in a, in a very deeper, I would say rather a very much deeper sense of the law. And I would like to tell you this, and I want to give you this illustration because I just shared with some leadership guys in my church about this. And one of the guys said, man, it blew my mind. I never saw it that way. The problem with the modern church, the problem with modern Christianity is not cheap grace. It is cheap law. Hear me say that again. The problem with modern Christianity is not cheap grace. This idea that, well, I'm just going to sin because God will forgive me. That's not the problem. The problem is cheap law. We instinctively take God's law, his word, and we lower the level of the law to a place where we can just get our head just above the water and keep breathing and feel some sense that we're swimming, we're doing enough. When Jesus always takes the law and he elevates, he throws it way over our heads and we're drowning. Matthew 5, 48 or 58, he says what? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, well, we're not perfect, but we're, you know, we didn't commit adultery. We didn't murder anybody. I'm breathing, right? No, 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 no. Be perfect. <gasps> I'm, that's, okay, that's the point that I want to make is that you got to realize that the law is much more uh, potent and powerful 
than you realize. It's higher than you realize. Okay, so those are the four uses of the law. Now let's turn the page and go into verse 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. He, again, he's looking at himself. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He's talking about sin there. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. He is a Christian. He's talking about, this is a Christian's experience, that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but look at this sin that dwells within me and that term dwells within me in uh, this passage is going to be repeated uh, three times. So there is a sin nature that is still dwelling within you. And this is the problem of the Christian life in practicality. We are, thank God we are saved by grace through faith. Because if we are saved by our works, we fail. Because there's still sin nature inside of us. And the Apostle Paul is saying that about himself. But I want you to notice what he talks about when he agrees with the law. He hates the sin that he does. And he doesn't understand why he, as a Christian who hates that sin, still does it. I just want to say, this is the Christian's response to the Christian's sin. Please have grace in your own life for your mistakes and for the mistakes and the sins of other people. Please do, because I'm telling you that they don't understand what they're doing. They don't get it. Why am I continuing to break God's law? I don't get it. I, don't, I hate what I do. Okay, Yes, we all do. As Christians, we all do because we understand the law is true, righteous, perfect, all that kind of stuff. But there's still that sin nature that's inside of us. Let's move on. Verse 18, he says this, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. And that is an important point, man. That is an important point. Let's just stop there. Nothing good dwells in you. And then he says, that is my, in my flesh. The world tells you that you got to follow your heart. You got to go with your gut. You got to trust your instincts. The world tells you to believe in yourself. The world tells you you can do it. You're amazing. You're perfect. I remember the song by Pink that came out a few years ago. You're perfect. In fact, I think the words were truly, actually, you're effing perfect. But the point is, is that there is this constant braggadocio in American vernacular and human vernacular of we got what it takes. And the Bible says, no, you don't. The Bible says you've got nothing of what it takes. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no fruit that you can bear that lasts for God and for eternity that is really, truly selfless and good apart from Jesus Christ. Oh, you can have the veneer of good. You can have the, you know, the self-righteous good. And some people might even benefit from your good. But ultimately, there is truly nothing that is perfectly good inside of you because you are tainted. You are, you are, um, you are, uh, totally depraved in the flesh. And so then he says this, for I have, because here's what he, how he unpacks that. Nothing good dwells in me, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability in my flesh. There's nothing good in me, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There is a battle going on in your body, in your mind, in your soul. The battle, the battle is between what you want to do 
and what you uh, do not want to do. Sorry, what you do not want to do and what you want to do. You can have the desire and then you ultimately do the exact opposite of it. The reason why is because Paul says in Romans 5.5 that God has shed abroad the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So the Holy Spirit is inside of us and and it's changing our wants. It's changing what we desire to do. But the sin nature is still there and challenging us and making us struggle with doing it. This is the battle of the human heart in the life of a believer. Now, you say, well, I know a lot of unbelievers, pastor, who also struggle with not doing what they want. Like they'll make a New Year's resolution to lose weight and then they'll go and they'll eat at McDonald's all day. Uh, or they'll make a decision to go to the gym and then they don't uh, want to go to the gym and so they just kind of buy the membership and they never attend and they think that owning the membership will cause them to lose weight magically. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, yes, there's always going to be some measure of law that people have for themselves. But Paul's talking about, no, let's talk about the deeper issues, the, the, the higher law of God. And, and, and we will get to a place in our lives as Christians where we are totally frustrated because the law of God is so much higher than human law. Everybody has something that they want to be or want to do and just can't do it. That's the human condition. But Paul's talking about something very, very much more dire, much more dire, because there's a literal war inside of you that disconnects from the reality of your life that you can't real you can't understand why you keep doing what you do. Let me take you to Galatians chapter 5:17. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The desires of the flesh are against that spirit. But you've got the Holy Spirit. That's the that's the that's the hopeful point here. Okay, now, moving on. Verse 21. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So there's always going to be that sense of um, evil, which will be near you in proximity to your good that you want to do. It's like the illustration from the old Looney Tunes uh, cartoons with Bugs Bunny, the angels on one shoulder, the devils on the other shoulder. This is the struggle of the human heart for the life of the Christian. Then he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In other words, I love the law. I do still delight in it, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So notice how everything is affected here. He's been talking about his flesh. He's been talking about his actions. Now he's talking about his mind that is under that is under another law. And that word is not referring to a law. It's just referring to a principle that your mind is also taken captive by this fight. There, there's this inward contamination within you that your mind can't even wrap its head around. Every Christian has this happen to them. Something happens, you get totally ticked off, you just blow up, you make a big mess, and you just, you immediately, you're like, I cannot understand why that came out of me. That's because evil lies close at hand. Every Christian's got this deal. Can you please, again, have grace for the Christians in your life. Have grace for yourself, because this is the struggle for every single one of us. We're going to do the things we don't want to do, and we're going to do not do things that we do want to do because there's that flesh nature and the flesh is stronger than we realize. Okay, verse 24, he says this, wretched man that I am. I love that. Wretched man that I am. Who, and that is a key word if ever there was a key word in the book of Romans, who will deliver me 
from this body of death. The issue is a person, not a program. Oops, sorry. That will change you. Person, not a program. Why is that important? Because so many times we turn to programs, law, to change us. And we can't do it. The law is a program, a self-imposed law. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure that I never do this and I never go there. And, I never do. and those are great for helping you. But ultimately, if all you're doing is just resisting areas where there's temptation, wouldn't it be a greater victory over you if you could just walk through areas with the temptation and not actually have the temptation? There's a greater power within you that says that's no longer an issue for me. That, that's better than just living in this very hemmed-in world, amen, where you're just trying to hem off every single thing that you could possibly be tempted by. A greater victory is that you can actually enter into that facility or enter into that scenario, and there, there's a change in your nature because there's a more powerful force person at work in you that empowers you to not even f- feel that temptation anymore. You've been changed. That's the great victory that we need. But all this to say that what Paul says here in Romans 7 verse 24 is Paul's problem is with Paul. Paul's problem is with Paul. And guess guess what? Your problem is with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just take your finger and just point it right there. There's the problem. I've identified it. (laughs) It's me, me and my big mouth, me and my stupid heart, me and my dumb decisions, me and my insane thinking. Okay. you, you Now, I don't want to disparage you, but I just want to draw your attention to the fact that this is a struggle for all of us. Now, there is a debate. There is a debate over Romans chapter seven. And the debate is this, something that only seminarians have the time to talk about. Is Paul speaking as Paul now, or is he speaking as Paul in the past before he was a Christian, or is he speaking hypothetically as one who is not saved? And there are some theologians who will tell you that what Paul is doing here in Romans 7 is he is playing the part of an unsaved person, and he is describing the struggle of the unsaved person. But that is absolutely wrong, because this is what he talks about here, about himself being uh, a wretched man is in complete line with how he refers to himself in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says he's the worst of sinners, uh, what he says in 1 Corinthians 59 when he says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle, when he also talks about in his old life. What did he say in his old life about himself? Philippians chapter 3. He said, I was blameless according to the law. In fact, I'm going to just see if I can get us there. This is, this is actually pretty, pretty much worth getting to. He says, Ephesians... Philippians, Colossians. Look at this. Look at this here up on the Bible cam, because this is important. Um, he says, I, if anyone has confidence or reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is not a man who says, I don't do what I want to do. This is a man when he was talking about his former life. He's talking about his pre-Christ life. I thought I was nailing it. (laughs) And then what does he say? Very next verse. But whatever I had gained, my nailing it. (laughs) I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered all things and be found in him. And then he says, I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith 
in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, <laughs> there is a profound difference here. There's a profound difference between the, the pre-Christ Paul who thought he was a good person and the now saved Paul who says, I'm a wretched man. Now, I want you to think about that because this is, this is going to be a game changer for some of you. Christians are not good people, and they are not people who are proud of their goodness. They are people who are increasingly aware of their badness. <laughs> this is a, an important truth, okay? When Paul says the problem is Paul, what is he doing? He's, he's eliminating the, the potential for pride. Because in our country, in our culture right now, we have a serious problem with people not understanding that they are the problem. We have a, this is getting insane. The problem is exacerbated because of our ideology that um, you're not the problem. Society is the problem. The environment is the problem. The things around you are the problem. And so change those things and you will be at peace within yourself. It reminds me of an um, article from 2012 by a therapist named Lori Gottlieb. It was an article in the New York Times, and the title of the article was, What Brand is Your Therapist? And she was talking about, in this article, about how when she entered into the profession, it had dramatically changed, and uh, there was patients that were basically not coming in for treatment anymore, and they didn't understand why. There's a huge dearth of opportunity in this, uh, in this, in this um, career path. And so they started to make some different changes to how to appeal to people for therapy. And so they would put ads out that would appeal to this idea that the problem's not out inside of you, the problem's outside of you, because nobody wants to feel like they're to blame. And this is a tremendous admission from a licensed therapist. Here's what she says. Nobody wants to buy therapy anymore, Truffaut told me. She had this conversation with a colleague. They want to buy a solution to a problem. This is something Truffaut discovered in her own former private practice of 18 years, during which she saw a shift from people who were unhappy and wanted to understand themselves better to people who would come in, quote, because they wanted someone else or something else to change, she said. I'd see fewer and fewer people coming in and saying, I want to change. <laughs> This is a non-Christian licensed therapist talking with another colleague, and the colleague is saying, yeah, I had to start selling them on this idea that the problem wasn't them because they weren't coming in for therapy anymore. And they even have in the article there, they have this satiric uh, picture of, a, of an advertisement for therapy. And the advertisement says, is it always someone else's fault? I can listen. Dr. Joe Holiday, social consultant. So it's talking about this idea that, yeah, the problem's not you. The problem's the people outside of you. And this has just gotten worse since 2012. It's gotten far worse. It's gotten far worse, has it not? Because this is where we are with gender issues and transgenderism and, um, you know, how I identify inside of me. Now, the whole of culture, listen to me, listen to me. The whole of culture has to change. And by the way, the whole of human history has to change their fundamental understanding of sex and gender. Because 0.2% of the American population does not identify as biologically that gender or sex. It's insane. It's where we are. How do we get to the transgenderism? Because we, because before the transgenderism, we had a whole laundry list of people saying, well, it can't be me. It's got to be my dad. It's got to be my mom. It's got to be, you know what? It was how my mom parented me and favored my sister and not me. So now I have a right to be angry. I have a right 
to have these issues in my life. Reminds me of the uh, movie Dumb and Dumber. If you ever watch this movie and they go to the diner uh, with sea bass and they uh, they go to pay and the woman at the counter at the register always cracks me up. She's reading a book and the book's title, if you look at it quickly, it says, of course you're angry. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love that little scene, that little nuance that the, the, co- the, uh, the, the Farrelly brothers put into that movie because it's like, that picture of a woman working at a diner and she's reading a book on therapy that says, of course you're angry. You have every reason to be angry because someone out there is ruining your life. Like, don't take responsibility. You're not the problem. People are the problem. And that is not, that's not Christianity. Look, you can, you can believe that if you're not a Christian, but if you're not, if you are a Christian, you have no right to believe other people are the problem. You can't blame mom and dad anymore. You can't blame sister and brother anymore. You can't blame the government. You can't blame the society. You can't blame, you know, other Christians. You can't like, say, oh, if you had done that, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. You, you, you got to grow up. And at some point, you got to take responsibility and see, wait, there's something deeply, deeply wrong with me. Look, um, G. Campbell Morgan says this, that let us not ever forget, okay, for those of you who want to change environment to change person, let us not ever forget that man fell in the garden of paradise. Power. That's a mic drop moment. Mankind sinned and rebelled against God in perfect conditions. Please understand that so that you don't fall prey to this idea that everything around you has to change and then you'll finally be a good person. Nope. Adam had that and Eve had that and they listened to the serpent. The truth of God's word is to bring us away from that lie and to confront us with our spiritual problem within and then to change us and transform us, not into better people, but into, and we'll get to this later, dependent people. So here's a thing I want to pop up on the screen because this is a seemingly negative talk, but it's actually a very positive talk and I'll get to why in just a moment. Spiritual maturity is not an awareness that we are getting good, but rather a humbling awareness that we are far more sinful than we realize, and we need more of Jesus and the Holy Spirit every single day. And that's what Paul is exhibiting here. I do not understand the things that I do. I I keep doing the things I don't want to do. Paul is exhibiting here a spiritual maturity, my friend. And if you read the Apostle Paul, every time he talks about himself, he's saying, I'm the least of the apostles, I'm the least of the saints, I'm the chief of sinners. He's like, oh, it's just a bad person. You guys got to understand this. And at the same time, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's not saying follow me. He's saying follow me as I follow Christ. As I seek him to change me and transform me, why don't you join me in that journey? Now, this seems negative, but it's actually very positive. I don't want to share why. Because if the problem isn't with you, a couple things. There's very little you can do about it. If the problem's everybody else, man, you're going to be angry at everybody. And that's why I say you'll increasingly blame others for your problems. That's number two. If the problem isn't with you, you'll increasingly blame others. Number three, you'll become more distant with others because it's always their fault. Number four, you'll become more and more judgmental of others. And you know what? At some point, people will get tired of you. This is why some of you are so lonely and so alone because this is what you've been doing your whole life, blaming, 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 blaming. And then you'll never get challenged because people are distant from you and then you'll never grow because you are isolated and then then finally you'll never find the solution offered in Christ. You'll never understand that there is a solution. But listen to me, an increasing awareness, an increasing awareness of just how bad you are inside of you is what will ultimately lead you to Christ as the solution. So let me just put this up on the screen, the final verse that we're going to talk about, uh, Romans chapter 7, 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, 
And notice how there is nothing between his cry of desperation, depra, uh, desperation and his confidence in triumph. Literally, the only space between his desperation, wretched man that I am, okay, and his triumph, thanks be to God, is a number that has been added by 13th century scholars. So there's no distance. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I find my, I, I myself serve the law of God with my mind and with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So this is the diagnosis of the apostle Paul, which applies to all of us because he is kind of like the archetype of the sinful Christian, the Christian who keeps doing the stupid things he doesn't want to do. Let's put this back on the screen, talking about that distance between you and your actions. What is in this? And you have to understand that there is something in there. There's actually several things. First, there's feelings. Feelings shape your action. And when you're young, it is increasingly feelings. And when you're old, it's less and less feelings. In fact, the difference between an adult and a child is adult, an adult gets a more, more of a handle on their feelings and follows them less. And a child only follows their feelings. Then there's beliefs. Then there's the things that you believe. What's, what do I believe to be true? Well, I believe that you know marriage is a good thing, or I believe that having a job is a, is a proper thing, or I, I believe that you should you know try to do your best in, in society. And then you know there's experiences based on past actions. And this is kind of interesting because your experiences will shape your actions. And by the way, the actions will then start to shape your feelings. They will shape your beliefs and they will shape your experiences. Don't miss that. That's important because now what you have to understand as a Christian and what Paul is saying here is that it's not simply uh, a moral beliefs or feelings or experiences. All of them are tainted by sin. They all have this sin effect on them. So there are feelings, but those feelings are shaped by sin. Uh, yes, you can have sinful feelings, but there are also your feelings that are shaped by sin. Then there's beliefs, and some of your beliefs are wrong. Just raise your hand if you believed something stupid five years ago, and you no longer believe it. Like five years ago, I believed that, uh, you know, um, the healthcare system of our country was a good thing. <laughs> the health, health, health sciences was a good thing. I'll save that for the deep end. But then, you know, there's experiences that are shaped by sin, your sin and the sins of others. And all these things, your, your actions go through these things. And then they produce more. So this vicious cycle, this vicious cycle of all these things shaping, all these things. And, and this is the frustration, friend, of the Christian life. This is what Paul says, wretched man that I am. I see us, I see in myself what he says, look, I see, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin and death. And others, I, I, I think that this is good, but then I keep doing the wrong thing. Diagnosis done. Thanks. Thank God. Because it's been seven chapters, right? Of diagnosis and deconstruction of the human pride. And now we get to talk about what it means. <laughs> So what it all means is that there is a deeper problem inside you that you don't see. There is a deeper problem inside you that you don't see. And that's what I've been trying to talk about in all of this context. You've got this serious issue with trying to work out what you believe and what you know is right and what you do. And until you get there, you're going to be struggling with this. You've got to get to the point where you stop living under the law. The law is a program. Talked about that earlier. Okay. So... Let me put this up. Living under the law makes things worse. Ultimately, this is Paul's point. We don't do better when we live under the law. In fact, we do worse 
As soon as we say, I'm never going to do that again, guess what we do? We do it again. As soon as we start to put up these, you know, guardrails of here's all the things that we shouldn't do and I'm going to make sure I never do. And it's like, it's like telling a kid, don't touch the hot stove. What does a kid want to do? Why? Why not? Right? So when we live under law, it makes things worse. As Warren Wearsby says, he says, instead of being a dynamo that, that gives us power to overcome, the law is a magnet that draws out of us all kinds of sin and corruption. And he is spot on. He is spot on. The law is not something that has any power. The law can only show you where you're wrong. There's no power to make you right. See, this is depressing, Pastor. What's, what, what's the answer? The way, I'm just trying to tell you that the answer is not the law. The answer is not the law. Back to Paul's question is, who? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Because we are, we are wretched. So there's an understanding that we have to come to first. First off, we have to come to this deconstructed notion of we are wretched people. Wretched people we are. Do you ever notice in the Bible, and, and this is an illustration for how we know we're bad, we're worse than we think. Every time in the Bible someone shows up and visits... Um, Every time in the Bible, God shows up and visits someone, that person immediately feels like they're going to die. <laughs> Did you ever notice this? Uh, Genesis chapter 32. It says, Jacob's wrestling with the stranger. He says, tell me your name. Why, why do you ask me my name? And he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, I have seen the face of God, and yet my life has been delivered. I should have died. I, was, I, just, I just realized I, I was with God, and I should have died. Or is Exodus 20, 18, when the people saw the thunder flashings of lightning with God on the top of the mountain and the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and troubled and they stood afar off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. In other words, they saw God and they thought they were going to die. They thought death was imminent. Or even Moses himself says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Like you, if you see me, Moses, you're dead. Right then, Judges six twenty two. These are uh, this is Gideon. This is Gideon perceived that he he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, "Alas, O Lord God! Now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face." But the Lord said to him, "Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die." New Testament. Um, Jesus tells Peter to cast the nets on the other side of the boat. A big a great catch is caught, and Peter says. He comes to Jesus, he falls down at his feet, Luke 5, 8, and says, Depart from me from a sinful man, O Lord. And then perhaps the most notable is Revelation 1, 17. John in the Isle of Patmos sees the Lord as he really is, the ascended Christ, fire in his eyes, hair as white as wool, you know, radiating light from him. And it says this, I fell at his feet as though dead. All this to say, wretched people we are. <laughs> And the more we see God, the less we love ourselves. And I'm talking about that negative love of pride. Hear that again. The, less, the more we see God, the less we love and honor or glorify self. There's a parable in Matthew 22. This is a wedding feast parable where the, the wedding feast, the king he has the... Um, in fact, I think I have it up here on the Bible. Yeah, on the Lagos Bible. It says, uh, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king, gave a wedding feast for his son, sent the servants out to, to tell people to come. They, they, uh, they said, no, um, you know what? We, we've got other things going on. One went to his farm, one went to his business. The rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, killed them. The king was angry. Uh, he destroyed those murderers, burned their city. This is a reference to AD 70. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main rows, invite the wedding feast, all that you find. Those servants went and gathered all who found. And then it, they had the wedding hall filled with guests. And then the king came in to look at the guests. He saw a man who had no wedding garment. 
because in those days you provided a wedding garment for the guests so that everybody looked the same. And then it says this, the king said to him, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Garment, And the man was what? Speechless. There's no appeal. There's no argument. When we see God face to face, there's nothing we're going to be able to say. There's no, oh, well, I made this decision. Well, I was a good person. Well, I tried that. No, this is an illustration of the final judgment. When, when we all stand before God, we are going to be wrecked. We are going to be wrecked. Why? Because wretched people we are. And until we get here, we, and we must, our eternal soul depends on it. Our wrestling with sin depends on it. Our victory over sin depends on getting to the place where we understand that we are wretched people. And the problem right now with the modern church is we don't get people here. We don't get people here. Uh, the problem, I'm going to put this on the screen. The problem with modern preaching is that preachers offer advice, guidance, counsel, and care, but rarely, if ever, address the true nature of our sinfulness. Oh, we're broken. Oh, we make some mistakes. Oh, we've got some issues. No, 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 no. We're sinners. We're, we're tainted in every area of our lives with sin, and we need healing. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to expose the condition so that you turn to the true solution. As Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 8, and I love this verse in the Old Testament when the people were rebelling, it says this, verse 10, from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And talking about the prophets and priests here, he says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, they did not properly diagnose the problem. They did not deconstruct them properly. They told them the problem was Babylon. They told them the problem was the economy. The problem is the president. The problem is uh, their brother, their mother, the sister, whatever. No, no, the problem's inside. The problem's inside. And this leads me to why it matters. A lot of diagnosis, I get it. And I'm sure you're probably done with it, but we're, we've got to get here because it's going to make a huge impact on your life. You have a choice. Here was, here's the deal in your life. And you're making this choice every single day. And you're not, some of you are not going to like this, but you've got a choice and you're making the wrong choice every single day. The choice is blame or change. Blame the people around you. Blame the past. Blame the culture. Blame your leader, your boss or whatever else you want to blame. Can I tell you that we are living right now in the probably one of the greatest blame cultures of our of human history where everybody is highly individualistic because of the Western enlightenment theories and reason and rationality. And we think we're smarter than God. And so we've jettisoned God from our lives and we've jettisoned Christian faith from our lives and doctrine from our lives. So everybody's an individual. Everybody's a self-imposed or self-produced individual who's wonderful and glorious. And we've made this choice that we know who we should be and everybody around us has got to get in line with it. Get in line because this is who I am. And I've got to be true to myself. I've got to be true to what I feel inside. I mean, look, and so, and then whenever anybody challenges what's going on inside of me, I will blame them and I will try to change them so that I can live right for me. So I want to just give you a couple of examples. First, a cultural example. Little boy says, I feel like a girl in a boy's body. Culture now says you are right in those feelings. We are going to change laws and science to accommodate you. This is blame. Or blame culture in the church. Church person says, the pastor offended me with what he said. Church says, okay, we will stop talking about that. Church, and this is what churches have been doing probably for the last 25 years, 35 years. 
We're just going to stop talking about sin because you know what? It offends people. We're going to stop talking about the blood. We're going to stop talking about, you know, the fact that there's repentance and righteousness and all that. Let's stop talking about that. Let's start talking about five ways to heal your marriage and five ways to parent your kids and six ways to find your purpose in life. I mean, goodness gracious. You can have a marriage as a Christian that's still tainted and, and disrupted by sin, mostly sometimes pride in the sin, in, in the marriage. Blame culture in marriage. The marriage person, married person says, well, they, don't just, they just don't make me happy anymore. Well, that's not right. Solutions offered. That's not right. Your happiness is paramount. Get out and find someone who will appreciate you. Blame culture in society. Got one more. Your view offends me. Cultural rulers, big tech, suspend, silence, censor them. Cultural rulers, university, disinvite speakers, fire professors. Cultural rulers in the government, vilify, then prosecute dissenters. Think it's not happening? Absolutely happening. This is how you get news out of Finland. When one of their former ministers, one of their former prime ministers is on uh, trial facing charges of incitement against gays, what did she do? She criticized, this is going to blow your mind, she criticized the Lutheran National Church for the Lutheran National Church's involvement in, their pro, in the nation's pride festival in June. I want you to think about that. The woman criticized the church, not the not gays. She's like they had. She was like they can do whatever they are, but the church should not be involved in this. Now the government is prosecuting the woman because the church was criticized by this woman, and she had a pamphlet about um, marriage being between a man and a woman. Now she's facing this is blame culture. This is the society saying. You're, you're the pro, your view is the problem. And I am a Christian and I'm telling you something. Here's the deal. I'm going to get a real, a little bit more intense here. I'm so tired and you got to realize this is happening. I'm so tired of my society making me out to be the bad guy. And as a Christian, you should be tired of it too. I'm so tired. We are Christians. We believe we are sinners who need a savior. And if what we believe about the Bible offends you, the problem is not with you, with me is with you. Really, I mean, this sounds like blame culture the other way, but it's not. I'm trying to talk about something that I, I need to release some Christians because it's a serious issue. You're getting you're, you're getting this constant uh, name calling coming your way. You're a bigot. You're you're a phobe. You're one of those people. You're unfit, and and this is uh, putting a false guilt on Christians. A false guilt, and I'm only talking about this because it's important that we. Uh, we delineate between false guilt and real guilt because the law of our culture has now usurped the authority of the law of God. And if we don't watch out, Christians, we will be more beholden to the law of culture rather than to the law of God, which is why some churches will stop talking about sin because it's no longer sin in society. God help us. We need to get back to the truth. Back to the point and the helpful part of this talk is this. The only way to change is to first realize you can't. The only way to change is to first realize that you can't. So number one, you are worse than you realize. Number two, the problem is sin inside of you. Number three, sin inside of you is more powerful than willpower because willpower is also tainted by sin. Remember? Remember that illustration? And then number five, therefore, I need someone. Someone who will save me from this body of death to save me. And this leads me finally to perhaps the greatest benefit to our struggle with sin. The greatest benefit to our struggle with sin. Every Christian sins. Every Christian does stuff they don't want to do. Every Christian hates what they do. Every Christian makes the same stupid mistake over and over again. And they still hate it, hate it, hate it. And they want God to change them, change them, change them. Okay. This is the 
perhaps the greatest benefit to your struggle with sin. Are you ready? It's going to blow your mind. Number one, uh, finally, to teach us to rely more and more on God and less and less on ourselves. That's what Paul is talking about here. That is why Paul will get to the end of Romans chapter 7, one more time over here in the Bible cam, and he will say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then notice the heading. This is not biblical inspired text, but notice the heading over Romans chapter 8, life in the spirit. Diagnosis over. Seven chapters. Remember when we began this journey and we talked about the wrath of God way back in Romans chapter one? And now here we are seven chapters later, diagnosis over. There is therefore, and we're going to get to that in two weeks. Sorry, guys, not next week, but two weeks. Therefore, there's a therefore to all this diagnosis. And we need to understand that there is a way out. There is a power that is available to us. I'll give you a little preview uh, from Peter, Second Peter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who caused to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted us precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There is an answer to this problem. But you've got to get over blaming people. You've got to stop pointing the finger. You've got to stop saying that is that person's problem. And you've got to come to this place that Paul did in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who? Who will save me from this body of death? That's the talk today. That's the lesson. I hope it's helped you. Do me a favor, like or share or subscribe. Do one of those things. Please help the channel. Your likes are very important. Your likes <laughs> helps the algorithm. Your comments down below helps us out. I want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to share my favorite comment in two weeks. And also in two weeks, there will be, believe it or not, 10 questions with Tim is back in two Thursdays. So I'm excited about that. I want you to get your questions in to ask at timhatchlive.com or the comments below. I want to answer your questions. Some questions came in on previous episodes, but um, that's what's happening. And I'm so excited for uh, being back with you in two weeks. In two weeks, we will be back with the deep end in two two weeks. So not next week, guys. We'll skip leapfrog next week, be back with the deep end and then the deep dive. And I'm so glad that you're here and I hope this has helped you. Let's acknowledge what's wrong so that we can turn to the one who is right and will make us new. God bless you guys. Have a great night. <laughs>